I want to ask you a question this moment, um, but right now when I ask you this question, I need you to be honest with me. You say, well, Blake, of course we'll be honest. We're in church, right? That's the exact reason I'm asking you to be honest, all right? Because I know that you want to act like no one saw that fight that you had with your kids or your spouse on the way to church. You want to act like no one saw that when you lost your attitude this week, but it's okay. It seems funny to me whenever we come into church, we wear these masks and we have to act like everything's okay and we don't have any problems, don't we? Somebody says, how are things going? You say, oh, everything's great. I don't know if there's ever been a day in my life in which everything has ever been great. Has there been for you? I don't know that's ever happened. So, so I want you to be honest in answering this question, but I'm going to help you out. Since you're going to be honest with me, I'm not going to make you answer out loud. You can just answer quietly in your head. Here's the question. How do you respond when you hear of something good happening to someone you know? Let me give you some examples. Let's say that someone you work with gets that big job promotion that you thought you were in line to get. What's your first thought? What's your first thought when that student that maybe is in your class gets that 34 on the ACT? Come on, be honest. All right. What's your first thought when someone sells their house after they put it on the market for five hours and it sells for $15,000 more than asking price? If you know my personal life, you know I'm getting a little transparent with you right there. Lindsay and I have had our house in the market for quite some time, trying to move closer to the church, so don't start any rumors, all right? Um, It just hadn't happened. But what is the first thing that we think of when we hear something good that happened to someone else? Is it not, well, God, what about me? I'm right here. Did you forget about me? Why did this not happen to me? Life's not fair. It always happens to who? Always happens to them. How about this one? Someone that you know, maybe it's a relative, and they have someone that dies in their family and they inherit a boatload of money and you've heard the trash they've talked about, that person that gave them all that money when they died. I know what you're thinking inside. You're thinking they don't deserve it one bit. Now, we wouldn't say that with our lips, would we? We're good Southerners after all, right? Oh, well, bless their heart. God's so good. I'm so happy for them. That's not who you're really, that's not what you're thinking inside. You're thinking they don't deserve it. If they only knew what they had said about them, this is what would happen. Listen to me. My question this morning is this, what do our honest reactions, when we hear of something good happening to someone else, what do our honest reactions say about our picture of God? Not only does our, what do our honest reactions say about our picture of God, what do, when we really think these thoughts, what do they think about, or what do they say about our understanding of God being in perfect control of our lives? A big fancy theological word would be to say that God is sovereign over our lives. When we have these honest conversations with ourselves, when we think about our misfortune or how they are blessed or they receive something that we do, what we're really saying when we think these thoughts is, God, you may have missed up Mark right there. God, I just don't think you really understand the full picture. That's not really what you would have done. And friends, when we say these things, when we have these honest conversations with ourselves, it really is just a small indication of what's in our heart. It's really a small indication of our lack of trusting God that he is in complete control of our lives. This morning, as Caleb shared in the baptistry, I'm so excited to begin a new sermon series on the life of Joseph. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 37 today. And if you've been at First Baptist for any time, you know that Joseph is my absolute favorite character in the Old Testament. There are so many incredible stories wrapped up in one character. 
Now, we know that, that Joseph and his story is important because Joseph, his one character in the Bible, occupies more space in the entire book of Genesis than you can take Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, even his father, Jacob. Now, within this story of Joseph, what I hope that you'll see, we're going to be in here for, for quite some time, almost until Thanksgiving or Christmas. So hang on to your hats here in Genesis. We're going to take one chapter at a time. And what I hope that you'll see as we study Joseph's life is more than just some moral lessons. More than just, well, here's some life lessons to live by according to Joseph. The Bible is filled with so much more than just moral lessons what I hope that you and I will take away as we walk through Joseph's incredible life is we will begin to see our life in the midst of God's great big picture. So let's jump into the life of Joseph. We're going to be in Genesis 37. And in verses 1 through 4, the first thing we see is we see the effects of favoritism. Read, read along with me in verse 1 through 4. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bela and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, in case you're wondering, that's still Jacob. Remember, he had, he had two names. His name was changed from Jacob to Israel. He loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now, every week, one of our goals is to try to make sure that we're reading Scripture in context. So let's make sure we understand what's going on here as we jump into Genesis chapter 37. We know that Jacob grew up in a family in which he knew that he was special. He knew that God had made a promise to his grandfather, who was Abraham, that through his family, through his lineage, that God was going to make him into a great family. Much more than a great family, they were going to grow into a great nation, and through this nation, God was going to save and bless the entire world. Remember Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham, and he makes this promise that through you, I'm going to bless you and make you a great name and make your family great and, and bless you as a nation. Abraham, in his old age, has Isaac. If you remember the story back a few chapters in, in Genesis, Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, but God spares him at the end, providing another sacrifice. Well, then Isaac, he has twins. Jacob is the younger twin. Remember the other one's name? Esau was the other twin. That's right. So at this point in the story, Jacob now has 12 sons. Now, the story of Jacob is a little interesting because Jacob ends up stealing his father's blessing from his brother Esau. It's interesting that Jacob's name is actually Deceiver. We're going to see deception is going to continue all the way through Jacob's story to play a role in his life. Now, Joseph, we see, according to the passage we just read, said Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. Now, why is that? There's two reasons that we know that Jacob preferred Joseph over the others. The first was he was given to him at an old age. Not only was he given to him at an old age, but he also was the first son born to his favorite wife, who was Rachel. Again, let's go a little back a little bit. Remember, um, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, and on his wedding night, he discovers that Laban has not given him Rachel, but has given him Rachel's sister, Leah. 
So, of course, he was a little disappointed. Wouldn't we all be, right? Okay. Um, and so then he, he, but he still wants Rachel. So he'd already worked seven years for Rachel and ends up getting Leah. So he agrees to work seven more years for Rachel. Rachel, it takes her some time to have a son. And finally, she has a son. And that son is Joseph. Rachel actually has one more son named Benjamin, and she actually dies during childbirth and giving birth to Benjamin. So Joseph, no doubt, he was Jacob's favorite child. Let me pause right here. There's lots of problems with that, okay? I can't explain that. I can't defend that. There's nothing right with playing a favorite for your child here. For that reason and other reasons, you know, we're not going to ask Jacob to teach our our parenting class on Wednesday nights, okay? Um, (laughs) Margaret Greer is a much better choice to teach. Now, other things, maybe Jacob, but Margaret Greer is our choice for parenting class that starts. Is that a good plug? George, make sure you give that to your wife, all right, that I pass that along. Um, But you see, favoritism, it, it seemed to play a role all throughout Jacob's family. We see favoritism played all throughout in the patriarchs. Jacob was his mother, Rebekah's favorite. And Isaac preferred, remember, Isaac preferred Esau. But you'd have to think that, and looking back at the story and Jacob going back on his life, that he would have remembered the damaging effects of favoritism. Remember how it happened in his life? Because he loved, because he was preferred by his mother when he steals his brothers and his son's Let's get this right. Lots of names here, okay? When he steals his dad's birthright blessing from his brother, his mother is so afraid that Esau is going to kill him that she does what? She sends him far away. So that favoritism that Rebecca had for Jacob, it ends up causing them to be separated. That same favoritism that Jacob has towards Joseph, we're going to see in just a few moments, is going to cause that exact same separation from his father. Joseph demonstrated his favoritism in several ways to Joseph, but the most um, elaborate way that we know is he gave him a coat, what? Of many colors, right? Now, Jacob had lots of money. He was from a prominent family. So I have to believe when you look into scripture that the other brothers probably had lots of other material possessions. I don't think they were neglected. They're not like they didn't have anything. But Joseph, clearly, he was given this ornate nature of this robe that he was to wear. Most scholars say this robe was different and that it probably came all the way up to the ankles and to the wrist so that it covered your complete body, which would have prevented him from doing work, which we're going to see in just a moment. But more important than being just a, a nice coat This robe, it set Joseph apart from his brothers as clearly being dad's favorite. Not only this, but most scholars believe that since he had this coat, it was an indication that he was going to receive all, if not the lion's share of his father's inheritance when Jacob died. Now think about this with me. You have your siblings. You know, because we all believe that Dad and mom love the other one more than us, right? Don't we? And that like born in our nature, okay? But this time your sibling ends up having this ornate coat that costs so much money that's so elaborate and you don't have it. And every time you see that sibling, they're wearing that coat that dad gave you. Don't you think there'd be a little bit of jealousy there? Don't you think there'd be a little bit of envy that's going on here? I, I think about UCF football team. Last year, they made national championship football rings, didn't they? Wasn't that last year? And they were undefeated. They probably, probably feel pretty good about themselves when they're wearing that ring, don't they? 
until they stumble upon an Alabama football player, right? And they see that real ring and they say, oh, well, that's what everyone else in the world, they think you're the favorite, but we think that we're the one. That, that's probably what's going on here. So we, we see this picture of Jacob and he's showing favoritism to Joseph. Now, I don't think Joseph is completely innocent here. I think he probably wore this coat, not just in front of his father, but probably in front of his brothers. And what is his job, according to the passage we just read? To give a report to his dad. So the brothers are out working in the field. They're out getting hot and sweaty and taking care of the flock. And Joseph comes and well, he's got this robe. Poor Joe, don't make him sweat. Don't make anything wrong with him. Make sure his hands don't get dirty. He can't work because he's got this coat on. And he comes back and he gives a bad report to his dad about his brothers. I just sense, and I admit I'm reading a little bit into the passage here, that maybe Joseph enjoyed this favoritism a little bit. Maybe he enjoyed his dad showing him a little bit of favoritism. And we see as a result of that, his brothers begin to what? Hate him. Sometimes we tend to idolize great men and women of the Bible as if they never made any mistakes. And we know that's not true. The only hero in the Bible was from several series ago is Jesus himself. So we see this happening here, and we see that, that their envy and their jealousy of the brothers, it progresses so much, according to Scripture, that they cannot even speak to him peacefully. Now, before we move on to the next passage, I find this interesting as I read this passage probably 50 times this week. Why were the brothers upset with Joseph instead of Jacob? Wasn't Jacob the one who was showing the favoritism? Wasn't Jacob the one that was doing all the wrong things here? We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Let's continue on verses 5 through 11, and then let's look at, at Joseph the dreamers were introduced to the dreams that Joseph had, starting in verse 5. It says, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. Just talking about binding grain, Okay. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. So brothers, if it's not bad enough that I'm the favorite one, if it's not bad enough that I got this robe, by the way, there's a time coming and you're going to bow down to me. Just wait. It's, getting, it's coming there. But wait, there's another dream. Let's keep reading. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. And he told it to his brothers and he said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father, his father kept the saying in mind. Let's make sure we're reading this in perspective again. Did Joseph just come up with these dreams? No. Who gave the dreams to Joseph? God. God is the one who gave both of these dreams to Joseph. And then Joseph, he goes and he tells the interpretation of this dream to his brothers. And in the second dream, he says, not only brothers, are you going to bow down to me? But there's a day coming that dad's even going to bow down to me. And it was the interpretation of these dreams that causes the brothers to hate him even more. 
But what about Jacob's reaction? How does the dad respond? At first, it says that he rebukes him. He doesn't like the dream, but then it says something interesting in that last verse that we read. It says that Joseph, that Jacob begins to, what does it say? His father kept the saying in mind. Why would he do that? See, I think that Jacob has a little bit more perspective here. He knows from his grandfather, from from Abraham, that God sometimes chooses to speak in, in unique ways directly to his people. God also chooses sometimes to do things in an unorthodox fashion. After all, the blessing usually is passed down to which order of children? The oldest. Usually the oldest should receive the blessing, but in this fashion, not only is Jacob choosing for the blessing to pass to the next to youngest son, but God himself is choosing that he is going to pass his blessing on to Joseph, not only to redeem his family, but to bless the entire world. So I think that when Scripture says that Jacob began to think about these things, the way I interpret that passage there is saying that, God, that, that Jacob begins to think, well, how might God be working in the midst of this? By the way, before, before we move on, did you see that the brothers miss an important part in that second dream? Even in that second dream, they're still what? They're still stars. They still possess a place of royalty, a place of important position, but they're blinded to that. Why? Because they are so jealous of the position that Joseph has given that they ignore the fact that they are still stars in this dream. The next part, verses 12 through 17, I've just called the search. I just want to try to summarize this passage for you before we move on to verse 18. So remember, Joseph's job was to go out and to bring back reports to his dad about how the brothers were doing. So Jacob, he sends his sons out into the field called Shechem. And Shechem was about a five days journey away. It's 50 miles away. And Shechem was a dangerous place, particularly for um, Jacob's sons, because he had a daughter named Dinah, and Dinah was raped in Shechem. As a result of that, Jacob has all of the men killed, and they end up raiding all of the homes there. So whenever Jacob sends his sons there, I'm sure he's thinking, this could be a dangerous spot. They probably don't like our family here, right? So Jacob sends Joseph, hey, go along and make sure that everything's going along okay there. While he's there, he's walking to Shechem, and when he comes up to Shechem, he's, he stumbles upon a, a man, and we're going to talk about that man in just a minute, who says, hey, what are you looking for? He says, I'm looking for my brothers. Have you seen them? He says, yeah, they're not here. They kept going on 14 miles down the road to a place called Dothan, which would be another two days journey. So Joseph ends up going even further. Now he's 64 miles away, a seven-day journey away from his father and away from that protection that his father gives him. Here's where the story gets interesting. According to Jewish tradition, most of the Old Testament scholars believe that that man was an angel. The word that's used there for man, it brought back the same recollection to when Jacob, his father, wrestled. It says a man who we know was an angel and changed his name from Jacob to Israel. I don't want to get hung up on that point. I don't know for sure if it was a man or it was an angel. What we do know clearly is this was the unseen hand of the Lord. Because here's what happens. This man is directing Joseph to discover his brother's. 
And when he discovers his brothers, he is seeing that, that this is taking place so that God's plan for the salvation of Jacob and the nation of Israel might take place. No doubt this person was used by God. And then we see what's the result of envy. Beginning in verse 18, they saw from afar and before he came near to them, meaning Joseph, and they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. I often wondered what, what was this conversation like? They were waiting probably a couple days and you say, well, how do they know it was Joseph? He's probably wearing that coat, all right? He probably could see him a mile away. So I wonder, what are they thinking? And they begin to talk. And you know how you get that mob mentality? One person says one thing and then you kind of gang up on them and that person becomes even worse than they really are. And they start talking and they build them up. And so finally they say, I think we should just kill them. Let's just kill our brother. See, they had this sense of pride. They were the older brothers. They were the ones that were supposed to receive blessing. They were the ones that were out doing the hard work. Joseph was just giving reports. So now it says that their anger builds up so much so that they come up with a plot to kill their own brother. Verse 21, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him back to his father. Reuben said, let's not kill him. Instead, let's just throw him in this pit here. And then in Reuben's mind, his thought was, then I'll come back and I will rescue my brother. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So they strip him naked. They throw him into this pit. There's no food. There's no water. And what I believe is a sense of foreshadowing, they put Joseph in his own famine. A famine's about to happen, but Joseph now is experiencing his own famine. Got to be at a pretty low point to do that to your brother, don't you? to think about we're going to throw him in a pit that's so deep that no human can climb out of it. We're not going to leave any food in there, no water. We're just going to leave him to what? Starve to death. And then what I believe is one of the most dramatic verses in the entire Joseph narrative, this next sentence, first part of verse 25, after they put him in here, leave him to starve to death, what do they do? Then they sat down to eat. No consideration for what they had just done. Left their brother for dead. Not even thinking about what's coming next. Now let's meet our own needs. Now let's eat. Some biblical commentators think that the food in which they ate may have come from Joseph who was bringing food from his father to them and that is the food that they could have been eating. Don't miss the irony here. While the brothers are sitting there eating, they're feasting upon this food, Joseph is where? He's left in that pit to starve. But 22 years later, 
Joseph will end up feeding his brothers and he will save them from starvation. Only God can work a story like this. Verse 25, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Let's don't kill him, guys. Let's sell him into slavery. After all, he is our brother. Shouldn't we at least take care of him a little bit? How compassionate, right? Verse 28. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew up Joseph, and they lifted him out of a pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. They had time to think about this. They had time to plan this. And at some point along the way, they begin to realize, hey, maybe it's not such a good idea if we kill him because then his blood will be on our hands. And instead, why don't we make a little money off of him? Why don't we profit off of him a little bit? So we're going to sell him to the Ishmaelites. And then we're going to do what? We will lie about it for the rest of our lives. By the way, you have to read it ahead a little bit and go to chapter 42 to see what a dark picture this was as the brothers actually see Joseph crying out for help. Look what it says. This is them recalling that moment as they're looking into this pit. Um, Genesis 42, the first part of verse 21. It says, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us. And we didn't listen. It's a dark picture, isn't it? But once again, don't miss God's hands here. God's hand shows us that it is the selling of Joseph by his own brothers that actually sets in motion the dream in which they are trying to avoid. Then we see the deception in the last part of the chapter. Beginning in verse 31, the deception that they are going to deceive their father. Then they took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat and they dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Do you notice how carefully they choose their words there? They don't say, is this our brother's robe, but is this what? Your son's robe. And they don't directly lie. After all, it is Joseph's robe, right? They're just going to ask a question. Just throw it out there and allow Joseph to, I mean, allow Jacob to believe the lie himself. So then we're not really lying. We don't blood our hands. We haven't lied about it. One more little piece of irony here. Jacob, he betrayed his father Isaac and stole the blessing from his brother wearing what? A coat of fur. Remember that? Esau was hairy and Joseph was smooth-skinned, and so he puts on this coat of fur to deceive his own father, and now it's coming full circle because we know that deception has such a long lifespan, and Jacob's life has now come full circle. Jacob, remember what his name means? The deceiver. He is now being deceived by his own sons. And here's how the chapter closes out. 
beginning in verse 33. And he identified it and he said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and he put sackcloth on his loins and he mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. What hard hearts they must have. But he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol, meaning the grave, to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. What do you think the brothers thought that Jacob's reaction would be? Do you think that they thought, we'll tell our dad that, that we'll, we'll make him believe that Joseph is dead? And do you think they thought, well, he's got 11 other sons. Surely he'll just choose one of us. We'll be the favorite one. Maybe he'll make another coat. Maybe there'll be another robe and then everything will be just fine. He'll forget about Joseph and life can go on. I don't even think they thought that far. I think that they were going down such a path of jealousy, such a path of destruction, such a path of, uh, of being so evil and hate-filled of what their brother is doing that they don't even think straight. Because you can justify the end result. Why? Because anything is better than where I am right now. And that's all I think that they are thinking at the moment. Here's the interesting thing about the story. Up to this point of the end of chapter 37, almost all of the characters, they're not looking any further than themselves. They're just seeing what's in front of them. Take Joseph, for example. He's wrapped up in being the favorite. Why else would he wear this coat filled with many colors 64 miles away from the protection of his dad, six, seven days away where he's just almost bragging, look at this coat that I have. He can't even see. This might cause some tension here. How about Jacob. Jacob, he's so wrapped up in loving his one son, Joseph, that he doesn't even begin to see, hey, maybe this doesn't look so good to my other sons. Maybe they're going to need to see Mark and Christy Jacob for the rest of their life if they continue to, to, to all have these other robes, right? They're so wrapped up in that. Then you have the brothers. The brothers, they're so wrapped up in jealousy and hatred towards Joseph, they can't even see the big picture of what God is doing in their life. Let me tell you a little secret here before we close. The secret is the story of Joseph, it's not really about Joseph. The story about Joseph, it's not really about the brothers either. In fact, the story about Joseph, it's not even about his father. The story of Joseph is a big picture of what God is doing all throughout salvation history. Remember, God had made a promise to Abraham that through his line, through his family, that God would protect, God would preserve, and that God would redeem the rest of the world through his family. And what we are going to see as we study the life of Joseph over the next several weeks is one man and his faithfulness, even in the midst of incredibly difficult situations, in the midst of those difficult situations, God says, I am going to use this to redeem and save my people. God is going to use Joseph in his big picture. What's the big picture? The big picture that God has is that God will keep his promises. The big picture is that God promised that he will redeem the world. This story is not about Joseph. This story is about God keeping the promise that he made. But don't you think at some point in the story that every character, they look up into heaven like we would at some point in our lives and say, but God, what about me? 
did you forget about how, how, how do I play a role in this? Church family, the question is not, God, what about me? That's the question we like to ask. The question that you and I should be asking is, how can I trust God and what he is doing right now? Because God's got a much bigger picture than what we can see right now. So we need to stop saying, God, what about me? What, did you forget about me? This isn't fair. And start saying, God, I know that you're moving. I know that you keep your promises. I know that you're working in the scope of eternity. How can I trust you even in the difficult moments that I'm going through right now? See, when we look at other people and we look at them and we say, well, what about me? How, what, what, did you forget about me? What we're saying deep down is, God, I don't trust you that you're in complete control. I, don't try, I think you've made a mistake. And instead of asking God, what about me? What God is asking each and every one of us, if you're in this room today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is he is asking us to bow down to him because when we bow down to him, we lose every sense of jealousy. We lose every sense of pride because we know and we proclaim that he is in control even when we don't understand and we simply worship him for who he is. The brothers and Jacob, we're gonna read in just a few weeks, they do bow down to Joseph. And in that moment, when they bow down to their brother, just as that dream foreshadowed, they lose every sense of jealousy. They lose every sense of pride. They lose every sense of hatred towards him. And in that moment, they will see that God is providing for them in ways in which they could not have even imagined. But here's the thing, church family. It's difficult for us to understand right here in our own lives. We have the blessing of having this book, of having God's word. And when we have his word, we know the beginning, we know the middle, we know the end. We know how Joseph's story begins. We know what happens in the middle, but we know in the end, he ends up saving his family, right? He ends up being used by God to save the nation of Israel. We know the end of the story that, that God wins, right? We know that, that God ultimately is going to reign and that he rules this earth because we know the end of the story. But for most of us, whatever situation we're going through right now, we're right in the middle. And right now, we don't see how God's gonna move next. We don't see how God's gonna end this story. We're living right here in the moment and it's hard for us to understand how God is gonna use this situation for his glory and for our good because we are right now in the moment. But there's coming a time when we will get to the end of this part of our story, whatever story you're living right now, and you will look back and you will be able to see God's hand even in the midst of the struggle, even in the midst of the turmoil, even in the midst of the devastation that you never would have caused upon yourselves. And you will see that God was orchestrating, that God was moving all of these events for his glory, for his goodness, and for his kingdom to advance. But we're not there yet. But centuries later, from the line of Abraham, from the line of Isaac and Jacob will come the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And from Jesus Christ, he never looks upon his father and looks up into heaven and says, God, what about me? Instead, he takes upon the sins of the world and he is completely obedient to his father. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And in his death and in his resurrection, he has conquered sin and death. 
And through his sacrifice, he burst the scene wide open so that you and I can be blessed through Jesus Christ. The question isn't, God, what about me? The question is, how can I trust God with my right now? Because we are all bowing down to something. Is it success? Money? Popularity? There's something that we're bowing down to. But when we choose to bow down to Jesus Christ, when we choose to bow down to God, what it means is we are releasing our fears, we're releasing our doubts, and we are trusting him, not understanding, but trusting him with everything. When you trust God with everything, you begin to see it, and you begin to understand his good and faithful leadership in your life where he is working for your good. He is working for your glory and ultimately, in the end, he will make all things right. When Joseph was in that pit, there is no way that he could have known the end of his story. There's no way that he could have known what God was going to do through his life. But he continued to trust God. How could he have continued to trust God? He had been sold by his own flesh and blood, left for dead, but he still trusts God. Why? He must have had this expansive view of God. He must have trusted that God had a purpose even for this. And I'll close with this, friends. There is coming a day when you and I will face-to-face -face be with our maker, we will be with our creator. And in that moment, we will see the full picture of the canvas that God has been painting on. And we will then, when we are with him, see that he was working everything for his good. But we don't see that right now. And the challenge today is not to try to figure out. It's not to try to make the puzzle pieces all fit together. The challenge for you and I today is say, God, I don't understand, but I trust you. I trust that you are going to use each and every aspect of my life, my job, my children, where I live, my hobbies. You are going to use all of that for your glory. And I'm going to trust you, even when I don't understand. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask that you forgive us for times that we trust you when we understand. But when things don't make sense, when we can't explain things, we throw our hands up in the air and we begin to doubt your goodness. We begin to doubt the fact that you are still in control. Lord, as the man told Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I pray that for each person in this room today. Lord, I don't know what each person is going through, but I have to believe that each person here has their own trial that they're going through today. It doesn't make sense. They would never choose this path for their life. But Lord, would you give them faith to trust? Would you give them the ability to hold on knowing that Maybe not even on this side of eternity, but there is a day coming in which we will have everything laid bare before us. 
and we will see that you didn't make one mistake. Help us to trust you. Help us to follow you completely. And Lord, if there's someone here today that has never trusted you with their heart, I pray that today they would lay down their pride. They would lay down their ambition of trying to earn their place at your table, to earn a place of being a son or daughter of yours, and they would say, there's nothing in me that can earn it, but the grace of God is being offered to them today. And I pray that if the Holy Spirit is speaking to them, that today they would receive that gift of salvation and say, yes, I choose to trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. We love you so much. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.